So this is pretty casual. Just chatting. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we we try to avoid the way that some other shows are like. How was your day? What did you watch today? Let's talk about sports and whatever else comes into our heads. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm nervous every single time. Every Don't time feel bad. I'm Don't never, feel bad. I'm never nervous. Sam's never nervous. I, I, I am like, I'm terrified before we fucking start every time. Like, I don't know how to do it. But I also podcasted for two years, and every time we recorded, I felt like I was gonna vomit. So it's like once you do it for a while and you start to think of it as a job. Like can't work up the same. Yeah, it's like, oh yeah, I'm not nervous to go to work. I fucking hate it here. <laughs> Welcome to Twitch of the Death Nerve, a cult movie podcast that takes a deep dive into a different film each episode. Our wide-ranging discussions will touch on genre, culture, and the history of psychotronic cinema. I'm Charles. I'm Sam. And joining us on the program today is our dear friend, Eric Bresler. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And in addition to having seen and forgotten more movies than I've even heard of, Eric is the founder of the Philadelphia Psychotronic Film Society, which holds its meetings and public screenings every other Monday at the Philomoca. <coughs> Sorry. Whew. Yeah, I get nervous, too. Yeah, yeah. You sound good, though. The countless movies... <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Ed. This inclusive film club is open to all cult movie fans and is one of the main reasons why I love living in this city. The countless movies I've discovered going to these screenings have had a profound influence on not just my tastes, but the way that I approach watching and thinking about cinema. And honestly, to be able to sit in an old mausoleum turned event space and watch an insane movie twice a month, it's a real gift. And if you listen to our show, we've brought up the Psychotronic Film Club a lot of times. And I now realize, so I've won an award for most offensive and most psychotronic. And I now cannot move out of the city until I win an award in each category. <laughs> You're going for the, because, the psychotronic well, EGOT? <laughs> because Eric is a madman and has these elaborate award shows with all of these clips. And it just it's like one of the best events of yeah. the year or... How how did you start it, or, or where what was the impetus for the Psychotronic Film Club? Uh, I came up with the idea in 2016. I think that was the year that I brought a uh, Chicago area filmmaker, David the Rock Nelson, mm. to Hell Philly. Yeah. Um, some of you may be familiar with him, real uh, Z-grade um, outsider filmmaker. And uh, I brought him in to uh, screen a film. And uh, while researching him, I saw that he had a lot of involvement with the um, Chicago Psychotronic uh, Film Society, which is um, the longest running psychotronic film group, maybe the longest running film group in the country. They've been doing it since the early 80s. And I know that they don't uh, necessarily meet regularly now, but they are still around and they still do meet up. Um, their screenings were always in a, a Chicago area bar. And, uh, you know, they would set up a projector and they would watch kind of the, the films that match the traditional um, definition of psychotronic, you know, like um, uh, atomic era sci-fi movies or classic horror movies. Oh, yeah. We've certainly taken the uh, definition of psychotronic and expanded it. <laughs> as wide as possible. Yeah. It's so funny. I feel like that was my second question for you. When we first started the show, we did this thing where every other episode we wanted to redefine what psychotronic kind of means to us because i feel like i mean i know there's probably like a written real definition and you well, know there's a some, whole book in a book yeah there's a book you know but 
it also feels like a kind of a nebulous concept. I mean, you can't really glue anything you want to it, but uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you define what constitutes a psychotronic movie? Yeah, and related question, has there ever been a time where somebody, so I don't think we said, but if you're a member for a certain amount of time, you get put on the screening list, which means you can pick a secret film that nobody except for Eric and I guess maybe your close friends know about. And, and that's how we watch movies. But I'm wondering sort of related to your definition of psychotronic, do you ever have to turn people down because they pick something that just isn't psychotronic? (laughs) Sure. So um, that has happened many times. I'm wary of actually defining my personal take on the word, but it is something that is definitely not mainstream Odds are it didn't have a theatrical run in the past few decades. I mean, there's certainly things in the 70s and 80s that had a theatrical run that would count as psychotronic. If it's a forgotten film, that's all the better. If it's uh, something that can't be categorized, that's great. We've really expanded the uh, term to uh, include current films. Uh, say they're made by, you know, a, a non-filmmaker like um, Surfer Teen Confronts Fear, <laughs> um, which was, uh, you know, an L.A.-based um, outsider filmmaker, you know, writer, director, star. We always like those films where it's somebody who just goes out on their own and decides to make a film and they do it on their terms. Yeah, just you know? when you think you know what an auteur is, yeah. you know. <laughs> Here's one from Mars. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, as far as turning down films um i do have everybody tell me what the film is ahead of time if it's something that fits the definition of psychotronic but i know that it has a major screening fee or has major visibility attached to it i will try to dissuade that um like liquid sky i think like liquid sky um one of our members last year wanted to show boxers omen i knew that was coming out though that it was officially licensed by arrow and it's now out on disc so i kind of dissuaded that i should mention that my favorite thing about this group is that it's very democratic so Every meeting, it's a different person choosing the film. Yes. And um, there's other psychotronic groups in the country, but they're all kind of um, lorded over by a single person who organizes them and chooses the film. Whereas this one, it's just a different programmer, you know, however many times a year we do this, so 24 screenings a year. Always a different programmer coming, you know, from a different viewpoint with a different type of film. Yeah, that's that's what I love so much is you you don't know what you're going to get when you go. Sometimes it's real punishing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the fun. Honestly, you're one of my favorite of the programmers. Whenever (laughs) your screenings come up... Vibrations. Vibrations was wonderful. But also, one of the things... I've mentioned this in the past. One of the things that I love about going to the movies is sometimes you see something that just like scrambles your brains in a way where you're like, I need to leave. <laughs> like Surfer Teen Confronts me. Yes. Yeah. That was one where like about... Honestly, it wasn't even... Ha- I got like 80% of the way through the movie... And like, I was just like, I was shaking. Like I turned white. <laughs> My friend who I can't like came with me was like, we need to get you out of here. And I was like, yeah, I gotta <laughs> go. I gotta go. Air. I gotta go. You know, I need to, <laughs> yeah, I need to go. And, and I think that's why when we, you know, invite you onto the show and we're like, so what movie do you, would you want to cover? I was really excited because I have discovered movies through you before and didn't know what to expect at all. (laughs) So the movie that we're going to be talking about tonight is The Man Who Stole the Sun from 1979, which is a movie that I had only heard about somewhat recently. So when 
you said that that was what you wanted to talk about, I was beyond excited because it's one of those movies that seems to not really, it's like when you read the plot description, which we'll get into a little bit later, you think it's going to be one thing, but it, it is very hard to classify. And I feel like outsider films, super hard to classify movies, weird experiences. That's what I associate with your programming. <laughs> yeah. And I think your definition of a psychotronic movie is very spot on, especially when you were saying how they're like lost or harder to find. And I think that's kind of what separates them from cult movies, because cult movies, obviously, as the name suggests, have a cult following. Psychotronic movies don't. Often don't. Not yet. You know, like there's an asterisk, you know, they're 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 about to be cult movies or they could be cult movies. And there, obviously there's crossover, but... Well, I think we should also say that Eric doesn't just run Psychotronic, but runs Filamoca, which has lots of, you know, bands play there, there are art shows, um, and there are a lot of film events outside of our movie club. And so I feel like you strike a really interesting balance between getting the cult repertory things that sometimes come through town, you know, like the new Agfa prints and new restorations. And then also finding venues, like finding an event that will allow you to play something totally crazy, like film festivals and things like that. For those who are unfamiliar with Philomoca, it is the uh, Philadelphia Mausoleum of Contemporary Art. And it's uh, housed in a uh, 120 year old former showroom for mausoleums the exterior is um all stone that's engraved it looks like a giant mausoleum it's beautiful yeah it is and uh it's a really old building that has survived the area's uh, gentrification and um hopefully will continue to survive a uh, common bit of trivia is that it's owned by record producer diplo um which some people are familiar with some people have never heard of him but he's our landlord and uh, he's a very what good, a landlord yeah a very uh, very good landlord so yeah i've been there um 2023 will be my 11th year running Damn. the room yeah it's crazy and um just to give people an example uh who aren't familiar with it our, our november programming which is wrapping up in a couple days it included um three performances with goblin doing a uh, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin, you have to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, get it right. <laughs> yeah, doing a live score to Suspiria. Um, I showed an early 80s um, Spanish uh, trans film that was lost called Dressed in Blue, which is excellent. Showed the new Negative Land documentary, which is excellent. We had uh, a wedding party. We had... Um, Your own uh, wedding party was there, wasn't it? It was. Um, <laughs> the uh, The night before I, I got married, I had a, a night of programming where my now wife sat in a chair at the front of the stage and we invited everybody to attend and I um, basically programmed a whole night of entertainers that were all surprises to her and uh, they ranged from a um, famous wrestling journalist that we love uh, to uh, <laughs> under, un, I don't know if you're familiar with underdog ladies. Oh, oh of course. If yeah, you she's don't, a local legend. If yes. you don't know underdog, yes. look her up. No, from Ocean City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes to all the parades. She's terrific. Yep, she's still active. She uh, made a bouquet of flowers for my wife. Oh. Um, and then they, the night ended with a uh, reunion of a 311 cover band. <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh, 
which I think will always be the most expensive joke I've ever played. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, you have to <laughs> commit to a bit. You I really love do. that you do that, though. I, I feel like plenty of people have film festivals and, you know, film events of all sizes around the country. But while I think a lot of other people, and not that you don't think about this at all, but I feel like often these events are very similar and people are like, okay, what are the most recent restorations? What's going to draw a crowd? Whereas you're like, how fucking weird can I make <laughs> yeah. this? No, no, no. It's, it's true. It's true. I, I love that. It sometimes feels as if like your mission statement is to share the weirdest shit that you will world. never find anywhere on your own. <laughs> and it's, it's just, it's so refreshing, you know? And I, I, I really, really love the space and, Thanks. Um, yeah, to do there. Two examples. Sam mentioned our Psychotronic Awards show. The best. Yeah, that, that Wings Hauser video. It was, it was fantastic, right? Yeah, we just celebrated Wings Giving uh, last week. and Yeah, I, I, in case we haven't brought this up on a past episode. So our dear friend Mark, every time his turn comes up for Psychotronic, he screens a Wings Hauser movie. And I think he screened Art of Dying. Is that yeah. right? This town's based on he said. Look, do me a favor, your parents a favor, yourself a favor. Get the hell out of here, all right? Go home to your little town, marry the boy next door, have babies before you become another hooker in a body bag, all right? So he screened Art of Dying, which won Best Film, and Eric very generously reached out to Wings Hauser, and Wings also very generously sent us this video that was like 20 minutes long talking about how like grateful he is and it was it was yeah. amazing wings he still got it he still got it i don't know the next time the next time some wet behind the ears 22 year old casting director wants me to go in and read for thug number four in some film area they, they, they don't know if i can play a bad guy I'm going to walk in and I'm going to go, read, read this motherfucker. I'm Wings Hauser. I just won the Philadelphia Psychotronic Film Society Award for being the best performer in a film called The Art of Dying. Motherfucker. Awesome video. But my the point I was going to make was that that wasn't free by any means. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, when I brought in the director. Yeah, of, that's why I said generously. Yeah, <laughs> when uh, when I flew in the director of Surfer Teen Confronts Fear to accept his award as a big surprise. You know, I, I paid for airline. I paid for hotel. And I'm, I'm always happy to do stuff like that out of pocket for the surprise in the reaction of the audience. Oh, yeah. Um, Surfer, by the way, is a film that I will always remember. It screened at Psychotronic the day that our daughter was born. So I wasn't there in, in person. It but, was um, wild. But yeah, People I hear were it. screaming, <laughs> including me. So that's always associated with her in my in my brain now, <laughs> that film. How how old will she have to be before you show it to her? Oh, she's already seen it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Right. And the uh, the winner is Douglas Burke, surfer, team confronts fear. So I think you picking the man who stole the sun makes perfect sense because, you know, you and and this is something we'll ask you more about in a minute, but you know, knowing that you have such an encyclopedic knowledge of Japanese music and cinema, I wasn't surprised that you picked a Japanese movie, but I feel like 
if I asked anyone else, they would have gone with something. I, f- I forget how I described this to Charles earlier. More like mainstream cult, like a Pinky Violence movie or, you know, Kenji one of Fukusaku, the- Seijin Suzuki. This director only made two movies. Mm-hmm. And it's strange to think because they're both very wild. Yeah. And they're very competently made and they have like big name stars in them. Well, so, okay. How did you first come across this, and why why was this your pick? In the uh, the late two thousands, I did an ongoing screening series. It was um, six Japanese films that were unreleased in the United States, never been released on any format, and I did that twice a year. So twelve films a year. I did that with the Japan America Society, and um, often each screening was at a totally different place in the city. So I did like. Uh, screening at Broad Street Ministry. I did um, vintage uh, 20s and 30s anime at the Shofuso Japanese house. Oh, wow. Uh, you wow. know, I always tried to find creative places to do them. Eventually, they ended up at um, at the uh, Japan America Society headquarters on Broad Street. But um, researching for that, I would often consult the uh, Kinema Jumpo, mm-hmm. um, you know, best films, top 100 films of all time. And... Uh, you know, Man Who Stole the Sun is one of the most famous films in Japan, yet it's unheard of, um, you know, except by people like us, but yeah. it's unheard of throughout the world. I don't think it's gotten a physical release anywhere outside of Japan. Yeah. I don't, and the Kinema Jumpo, it's basically like the Japanese Kair du Cinema. Exactly. For anyone who doesn't know. But it's so crazy to me that specifically with Japanese cinema and also Hong Kong, you get these movies that to me feel like psychotronic movies that are like winning best picture award and best actor award. Like I think Bunta won best supporting actor for Mm -hmm. this one, but it's like, how do we not, how have we not heard of these movies? Yeah. And the reason that it immediately comes to mind when you're like, Hey, what, what movie would you like to talk to is it's got its rarity going for it. It's got, a Schrader connection. I love the Schraders. Oh yeah, I so can't wild. wait to get into that. Love the Schraders, and I'm a I'm a, somewhat of an aficionado on um, Japanese music of the '60s and '70s. So the lead actor Kenji Sawada is one of the biggest rock pop stars uh, ever in Japan, and I could talk to you forever about that. And then of course uh, his co-star Bunta Sugawara, star of so many fun uh, Yakuza films. Yeah, we fucking love Bunta. We love Bunta. So it has a lot going for it. It's honestly it's it's frequently on my mind. Yeah. So I first heard about it earlier this year. Someone was describing the plot to me and they kept saying, you're going to love this movie. And the plot basically is a Japanese high school science teacher steals plutonium from, you know, a fucking power plant. A Lego factory. From a Lego factory. He gets the (laughs) plutonium and enriches it in his home and builds an atomic bomb and holds Tokyo hostage. That was the plot I was told. And and they refused to tell me anything else. They're like, no, that's it. That's all you need to know. Go wild. And and I guess and because that was earlier this year, I've been kind of building up a very different movie in my head. Well, I think part of it is because... So we discovered the Choi Hark film, Dangerous Encounter of the First Kind. And we did a podcast episode on it. We became obsessed with it. And... It, I think watching that movie where for anyone who hasn't listened to the episode or seen the film, the plot is basically like these high school kids and these these like young adults are really bored and disgruntled. And so 
they start bombing in Hong Kong as a prank. And so I think (laughs) knowing how nihilistic and how action heavy that movie is, I was expecting something like that for Man Who Stole the Sun. And it is the total opposite. Yeah, it's it's weirdly because usually you think when you think about Japanese movies that deal with atomic bombs or even like public acts of terrorism yeah that usually there's this like kind of level of nihilism throughout and this almost has a whimsy in its place like instead of this grotesque nihilistic you know we're fucked there's whimsy even when the character is like suffering from radiation sickness there's this whimsical feeling going on and it's kind of unsettling i think (laughs) (laughs) it's Um, a hangout movie what you said just brought to mind another hong kong film a major plot point of, of Man Who Stole the Sun is that this criminal specifically requests a uh, certain inspector, played by Bunta, to kind of be his rival, his father figure, his challenger. And that brought to mind Running Out of Time, which I recently watched. Oh, you know? we love Running um, Out of it Time. It made me cry. I bawled my eyes out. Amazing film. Oh, Johnny Toe is so, so good. good. Yeah. Uh, did you see the sequel? With not the, yet. No, oh, no, 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 no. Oh my god! Is it just as good? <laughs> it, it's it's good in an entirely different way. You're gonna love it. I can't wait. Uh, oh, that's it's exciting. the same film with a few major differences. But that relationship is really one of the basis of this film. It's this this hard nosed veteran cop who is squaring off against this pretty very, pretty boy. <laughs> yeah, this likable pretty boy who has this sadistic side. And part of the film is the viewer trying to figure out his motivation. Why did he build this bomb? What does he plan to do with it? What is his viewpoint on the world that makes him, you know, kind of teeter towards this just nihilistic, um, you know, (laughs) possible destruction of his country? And as you said, it's not as nihilistic as it should be. Yeah, it's very meandering. It, it, it is um, in, a, in, a, in a whimsical way. Um, and that, that certainly comes into play when he starts making his demands, which are one of the most interesting oh my things gosh. about the film. Yeah. And um, I think that the, the intentional comedy really comes out in those. Um, the film was a collaboration between uh, Leonard Schrader and um, the, the filmmaker, of course. Yeah. So do you know how the fuck did Leonard Schrader have anything to do with a movie made in Japan? Like, how did well, that sure. happen? It's um, so crazy. Yeah, so... Um, and that's Paul Schrader's brother, right? Yeah, it is, his younger brother. And um, do, you, do you want to tell the story? I could, I could tell. Yeah, no, you could go tell. Off. The, the legend that he has repeated throughout his career is that he <laughs> uh, moved to Japan to escape the draft. He moved, I think, in 68. Coward. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know what? I read an interview with Hasegawa who said that when he first met Leonard Schrader, Leonard seemed ashamed of what he did moving to Japan, which is kind of interesting. That is. So he uh, he lived in Japan. He taught English at night schools. Uh, I also read that he taught at universities. I'm not sure if that's true, but I know that he ended up marrying one of his students. Classic uh, like, move. Like you do. Classic yep. move. If you're <laughs> and, a professor out there listening, you know what to do. And uh, during uh, that time, he also frequented Yakuza bars, as he claims. And uh, so that's where he learned about the kind of criminal underworld of Japan. Which is why we got the movie Yakuza. It's yep. just called The Yakuza, The Yakuza, right? 1974. Is um, it good? What movie Robert is this? Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum and, and Ken Takakura. It is... Um, that's Chris Mitchum's dad, right? Oh my God, stop. <laughs> It is uh, one and of, Jim Mitchum. <laughs> I, I will say I don't know if it's good, but it's one of the earliest films to 
respect Japanese culture. And it's probably one of the earliest films to bring kind of Yakuza mentality to the U.S. It reminds me also, so I haven't seen it in forever. It was like something that was on probably TNT when I was in high school. And I think in my brain, it has merged with American Yakuza, the Viggo Mortensen movie. <laughs> so we'll have to watch them both and see it how true like that is. sounds like a great double feature. <laughs> so Leonard Schrader is in Japan. He's teaching English. He's bumping shoulders with the Yakuza. Mm-hmm. Allegedly. Allegedly, you know. He learns the language. He becomes fully immersed in the culture. He meets Yukio Mishima. That's why Paul Schrader made the movie about wow. Mishima's life. And also it was um, when uh, the, the director of uh, Man Who Stole the Sun when the script was uh, in its final stages, he actually showed it to um, some of Mishima's disciples to get their opinion on it. Wow. Uh, out of fear that it was going to cause riots amongst certain radical groups. Sure. And they assured him that, you know, don't worry about it. We got your back. Yeah. <laughs> he was an intellectual who advocated action. He was a rebel who fought for tradition. He was an artist who shocked the world. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas present a new film by Paul Schrader. Mishima. So yeah, um, and you know, he uh, Leonard Schrader wrote other things throughout the 70s that weren't necessarily Japan-related. Kiss of the Spider-Woman. Yeah, he. Yep. so he apparently, and I kind of want to dig more into this, uh, he apparently, I guess, once he sort of... I don't want to say ran through, but like once he was fully immersed in Japanese culture, he apparently became really well versed in Latin American literature and and politics there. And that was how he wrote Kiss of the Spider Woman. Hmm. Like what a life. Yeah. And like considering that the Schraders grew up in this like Michigan or something. Yeah, but the in Midwest. this like this like like very Calvinist, Calvinist religious household where they didn't even see a fucking movie until they were like, you know, a hundred years old. And then, you know, they go on to make these very, very interesting films. Oh, also Killing of America, which we've talked about yeah. on the show. I mean, that makes sense to me because the kind of satire and humor that's in The Man Who Stole the Sun. It's also in Killing it's of America. It's in Killing of America, but in a much more cynical way, you know, in a much more bitter way. The thing that also doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and maybe this is just i think it's partly true and partly a stereotype but i feel like there's this idea that the japanese are a very closed off society and so the fact that like an american would be co-writing a japanese language screenplay about such a specifically japanese topic is wild like it's a sort of thing that you could never think would be possible yeah i I agree um i think that one of the things that schrader found interesting was how uh, i remember him commenting on this that the the japanese um the citizens don't necessarily complain about things so one example is that uh, baseball games that were televised uh, <laughs> would cut off at a certain time before the game was over because there was paid uh, content, you know, yeah. sponsorship. Nine commercials. PM, game's yeah. over. That was a real thing. And he found that strange that people just put up with that, not knowing the ending to their baseball games. And they worked that directly into the plot of this film. If you did that in Philadelphia, people would burn the fucking city down. Are you sure. kidding me? Absolutely. Well, we were happy to do it over anything, That's really. True. <laughs> but I mean, I feel like that that scene in the film where this guy has the access to the power of the sun, you know, he's got a fucking atomic bomb that he built in his house. 
at the cost of his teeth and hair. Yeah, I the there's a scene where he takes early on where he takes the plutonium, which is basically this purple liquid in a canister. <laughs> purple he, Kool-Aid. he takes it home and goes through this process where he turns it into a solid, evaporates the liquid. He's doing and, Walter White shit to the plutonium. And he he does have it in this sort of like insulated hazmat container but then he takes it out and puts it in his oven to further reduce it and i was like losing my Mm -hmm. mind yeah but the (laughs) fact that so this guy then gets this atomic bomb and because it's a young guy who's wasn't even alive when you know the bombs were dropped and he's like in that kind of like disaffected youth very lonely doesn't have a social life yeah doesn't really have like, like like you were saying earlier, how you're trying to figure out what his motives are. So is he. So is the character trying to figure out what to do with this power. And he's like... Sort of weirdly focused, but weirdly very aimless at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and his first demands being, I want to finish watching this goddamn baseball game. Sure. Yeah. For the first time in my life. <laughs> what do you guys think about that heist scene when he goes to get the plutonium? Oh. It's that, so funny. It's that, That's the first instance of comedy yes. in the film. And what do you think of the structure of it? How it's all broken up kind of single images? So I don't think it's out yet, but I recently recorded a projection booth episode on Baba's Danger Diabolic. And maybe because that's on my brain, that's what it reminded me of. How he's he's in this like sort of all black suit and of course he's just a teacher so he doesn't look like a professional spy or anything and he's got this backpack but the way that it's so like colorful and neon and artsy it feels like a cartoon or like a like a 30s film serial or something remember that scene ends with him wielding a flamethrower (laughs) burning all the security people that are chasing him that's the first instance where you're like oh maybe this isn't like the serious film and then there's plenty of other moments like that like and also you it's the first time you're like, whoa, maybe is, are we supposed to identify with him? Is he a, is he terrible? Like what? Yeah. Who, who is the enemy in this film? I mean, the movie's not interested in that, Mm -mm. you know, those, those standard things where when you're watching a movie, you need someone to identify with, you know, you need all these things. But with this, it's just like, it's just a wild plot. And, and where's it going to go? And how, how is it going to tell you the story? And I think that's why I was so surprised by it, because it was the exact same movie that was sold to me. A high school teacher. But also you know, not that at all. No, it's so, so different. And and yeah, that, that scene is very indicative of the tonal shifts that happened throughout this movie. And after after that scene played out, I think I looked at Sam and I said, What are we watching? <laughs> yeah, and and doesn't that scene almost feel like it should have opened the movie? to give you some kind of grounding because there was a while where I, I couldn't really find my footing on what this movie was and that was the scene that made me be like if okay it, if it was a fukusaku movie and it was a fast-paced kind of cult sci-fi spy terrorist movie absolutely but like it's not yeah <laughs> it's it's so weird to do nuclear terrorism satire stuff it's such a strange but but also i feel like when we say that people are gonna think about Dr. Strangelove, which this feels nothing no, like. No, no, it, it, it doesn't. Like really. it doesn't. Maybe, maybe this is just me, but like the comedy 
It just sort of happens at random times. It's not like written as a comedy, if that makes sense. Totally. It, it is It is a different approach towards comedy. I could see someone watching this and saying, well, that none of the comedic scenes fit into this film. You could also look at it the other way. Like, why is it so dramatic? This is <laughs> yeah, a comedy. Yeah. Um, and I think that... that, that Part of the uniqueness of this film is that it kind of fits into the whole Japanese New Wave movement. Yeah. Where our filmmaker came out of. He started out as uh, an assistant to... Oh, at Nikatsu, I- yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, well, but even before Nikatsu, he was an assistant to Imamura. Oh, that makes Profound sense. Desire of the Gods was his f- the first film uh-huh. he worked on. Wow. The one about the, the man who ends up on the island with the, um, the inbred society. Um, so that's where he cut his teeth, uh, you know, right in the, the beginning of the whole art theater guild, Japanese new wave movement. And this film definitely reflects, um, reflects those times and those sensibilities and even more so his, his first film, um, youth killer, Killer. which it's, it's funny that you say that. So I just knew about his work at Nikatsu, which we could talk about in a second, but the art theater guild stuff, you have, you have all of this crossover. Like there are some Imamura regulars in this film and in Youth Killer. What's um what's the Art Theater Guild? So the Japanese New Wave is totally unlike any of the other new waves because you have these young directors who are funded by big name studios like Toho. And it's sort of hard to comprehend, but the studios were basically so desperate to bring in new viewers that they were like, okay, you young ruffians, like do whatever you want. And people like Oshima did. And they were like, just kidding. Okay. So the studios were just like throwing shit at the wall to see what would stick. And well, and so it didn't, they weren't always happy with it, but the art theater guild was this, production company who originally started to fund foreign films being screened in Japan, foreign exactly. art house they films. Were, they think of them as the Janus of, uh, of Japan, bringing yes. in foreign films. They also ran a chain of theaters where they would show those, those Which films. is so cool. But then they started Isn't funding... is that what you do? You're like the Philadelphia Art Theater Guild. <laughs> uh, but then they started funding some of what we now consider the Japanese New Wave directors like Nagisa Oshima and Shoei Imamura... Teriyama. Yeah, Teriyama. So this makes perfect sense to me because a lot of the kind of Japanese movies that I watch, like, you know, the Boncho movies and like the Sukuban movies and Pinky Violence stuff, a lot of times they feel like art films. Like I'm watching some like, you know, titty filled women in prison movie and suddenly I'm like transported to fucking Neverland. With the most beautiful (laughs) cinematography. Yes, they're gorgeous. And yeah, that kind of makes sense then. If, if It's so weird, though. It's like to think that your new wave tradition is being funded by partially major studios and partially by these like art film nerds. Yeah, and um, the Art Theater Guild lasted until the early 80s. Some of the final films they were released were... Um you know, a couple Obayashi films. They did a Sogo Ishii's first film, uh, Crazy Family, which is a ton of fun, and was also developed um, with the director of The Man Who Stole the Sun. He worked with Sogo Ishii. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he um, after he made Man Who Stole the Sun, he had this, um, I think it was called the Director's Club, something like that, but it was... Um, director's Company. Company, yes. Uh, so that ran for like a decade, and basically he helped... Uh, unique up-and-coming uh, filmmakers craft their films. Which uh, Sogo is so Ishii. nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's awesome. And I mean, I know like famous stories of directors kind of 
overstepping the line of what a studio wants, where they give them these permissions. Like Orson Welles. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking Station Suzuki, oh. but I mean, Orson Welles. Well, yeah. Suzuki, once he was kicked out of the studio, he had some of his films made around the same time as The Man Who Stole the Sun, funded partly by the Art Theater Guild. Yeah. Okay, so The Man Who Stole the Sun, one of the things that halfway through looking watching the movie, I have this rule when I'm watching movies. That uh, if I think, oh, who's that guy? I recognize that guy. I don't look at my phone. I can't pull Whereas my phone out. I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's an area of contention. But I had to know the age of the director and the age of the star and when they were born. Mm-hmm. Because it felt very different from a lot of other movies that deal with atomic bombs made in Japan, even like Godzilla movies, like the way they deal with, you know, even talking about atomic bombs is like pretty serious. Well, Cause you know? they were all alive. Yeah. And this kind of had this, I don't want to say, I don't know how to say it. An it's irreverent like, attitude yeah, that you like, don't see in the kind of like films. devil may care, like attitude towards it, which was really interesting. And were they in their mid thirties? I would yeah, assume both of them. They were both definitely 15 years younger than Bunta. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, so wait on that note, it's kind of surprising to see a super famous pop star in the lead role of a movie like this. Do you know, like, do you know how he got there or do you think his persona kind of shaped the movie at all? Well, in one very important way was that the film did not have distribution. Um, Toho was reluctant to distribute it until both um, Kenji and Bunta signed on in the cast and that cemented the deal. Um, yeah, I was going to say, how did Toho say yes to this? Right. <laughs> That's why uh, two of the most bankable um well, one of the most bankable stars of the day and then one of the most famous pop stars of the day. It's wild he could get them when it was only his second feature. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm sure the name Leonard Schrader had some clout. And also the subject matter. Yeah. Um, Hasegawa, by the way, um, does have a personal connection to the film. He was exposed to uh, radiation when he was a child. Uh, his mother survived one of the attacks. So that has to play into it in oh, some yeah. way. Though yeah. the impetus of this film came... Uh, when Leonard Schrader saw in some pulpy, you know, tabloid magazine, uh, there was a headline that said, be the first person to make a homemade atomic bomb. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you assume that, you know, the article didn't really have instructions on how to do it, but probably broke, you know, the elements down in some way. That was the impetus for this film. That's so uh, wild. That's what he told Hasegawa about when they first met. Uh, Hasegawa was in the United States. Um, forget mid 70s uh, and i don't know why he was in the united states but that's where they first met and became friends and they wrote the um script by mail over the course of i think four years oh wow um, that's so crazy but i could i could talk about kenji sawada forever yeah um, okay so my my <laughs> first comment to charles when we were watching this movie i was like in no way is this historically accurate because No Japanese school in 1979 is going to let this long-haired degenerate teach a science (laughs) class. Yeah, and not just this long-haired degenerate teach a science class. He's chewing fucking gum the whole time. You can't be chewing chewing gum in school. There are so many moments where he's blowing a bubble and it just, it gets away from him. It's the biggest goddamn (laughs) bubble you've ever seen and just splatters all over. It's so nice to watch. It only adds to the mystery of this character. Yeah, I mean, there's... There is so much him, that you know him about him. on the playground. <laughs> it's, it's so strange. Like, you do feel like you know enough about him, except nothing about what he's thinking. 
and like nothing about like what drives his decisions but it feels to me like like youth like it's 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 perfectly capturing youth in a way but like youth on the verge of adulthood where you're supposed to have a career and a focus and he just yeah and and instead of developing the traditional you know things that you would at that age where you're like okay i have this career you get married you know you actually buy a house uh he's like you know what i'm gonna put all my eggs into this building an atomic bomb (laughs) basket okay so i have to ask can you tell us a little bit about what kind of music Kenji made? Like, was it was it sort of more mainstream pop type stuff? Was it counterculture at all? Where to even begin? So, um, Kenji was the uh, Kenji Julie uh, Sawako, which I as love. Julie, his stage name, um, named after um, Julie Andrews. Yes, his his heroine. What? Um, he, he was obsessed. He was obsessed with Julie Andrews. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but, but wait, that's pretty common, isn't it? Like having a stage name, nickname that's not like like my nickname is Sam, but those nicknames would be totally different. Um, yeah, I think that choosing a feminine one was actually very unique, though. Um, in the in the late sixties, you know, rock and roll was in Japan in the late sixties. You know, just like it was everywhere around the world, it was spreading. It was a blight. Um, yeah, and even before <laughs> all of these uh, Beatles-influenced bands popped up, there was the rockabilly bands, and of course there was um, instrumental surf music. You know, the Ventures remain one of the largest foreign bands in Japan ever. It, it, That's you, you crazy. can't measure how the, the Ventures had their own film in Japan, distributed in Japan. That's how large and what? successful wow. they were. The Beatles performed in uh, Japan in uh, June of '66. Uh, they did uh, five shows, I believe. And um, at that time, there were already these four five-piece garage rock bands who were just emulating the Beatles, you know. Often they would wear uh, similar outfits, often military-themed. And um, some of those bands, like the Rangers and uh, Yuya Uchida, opened for the Beatles um, in Japan. Kenji comes into the story. He had a band. Uh, I forget the name of his original band, but he was opening for this other band in Kyoto, the leader of this band he was opening for used the stage name Sally. Again, it was unique to have a feminine name. And um, they saw Kenji perform that night with his original band, and they said, hey, would you like to be the singer of our band? And <laughs> thus You're the like, Tigers... Let's get rid of this Sally idiot. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and he was like, oh, you're Sally, I will be Julie. And then the band The Tigers was born. Tigers uh, dominated the Japanese music scene from um, 67 to 1970. They were actually very early on scouted by uh, Yuya Uchida, who opened for the Beatles back in 66, and uh, he immediately got them signed to a major label, and they became huge. Two theatrical features, both, you know, Beatles film ripoffs. How are they? Uh, they're goofy. I only have them without subtitles, but you certainly get the idea. A different, uh, and by the way, this genre of music is called group sounds. Just think of it as like Beatles ripoff films. Group sounds or GS, as they abbreviate it in Japan. There's another GS band, the Spiders. All of these bands have the something. Oh, yeah. The Jaguars, the Mops, the, you know. Um, the Spiders had five theatrical films. Holy shit. Yeah. And despite that, they actually weren't as uh, popular as the Tigers. The Tigers ruled all. The, they had a very creative uh, management company. 
one one great instance is they uh, sent the tigers to America to um, film a commercial for Japan. And while they were in America, they sat in the audience at an episode of the Ed Sullivan Show. When they came back to Japan, their management company promoted direct from the Ed Sullivan Show, you know, the, <laughs> the, the, the tigers are back. Isn't that wild? That's amazing. Awesome. Oh, I, man. I read this rumor that Kenji was the only japanese person like on the cover of vogue other than yoko ono or something rolling stone rolling stone. 1969 i knew rolling... vogue couldn't be right yeah. <laughs> uh in in 69 uh rolling stone did an article about these group sounds bands in japan and kenji's on the on the cover and and by the way there was uh, hundreds of these group sounds bands some much better than others um some you know released a single seven inch and that was it i'm an expert at this genre of music i have an insane collection of cds and vinyl um but the, the, one of the most interesting things is that this kind of you know this really cropped up in 67 after the beatles played in japan and just as fast in 1970 it all fell apart everybody all the youth moved on to the new rock movement which was inspired by psychedelic bands yeah. bands like mountain and, and led zeppelin you know so it, it immediately was not cool to be in a group sounds band uh the tigers broke up kenji tried a new more um kind of hippie-ish band called pig pyg with members of the spiders and the tempters kind of an all-star group you love it uh yeah they, they released one album it didn't go anywhere that same year julie released his first album the sound kind of changed. And keep in mind that Japan's not a country where the performer is necessarily determining his sound. It's kind yeah. of based by committee decision. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we have that here with mainstream sure. pop music. Sure. Like people don't write their own songs a mm -hmm. lot of the time. They have things picked for them. It's the same way with all of those Japanese uh, idol bands, Korean idol bands. You know, oh, yeah. It's form formed by committee. Honestly, the committees know what they're fucking doing. Sure. You know, <laughs> we got to get do. rid of these shitty singer songwriters with vision and shit because they're just crowding up the whole marketplace. Now, granted, uh, Julie did have more control over time, and you know he he was a, he's a legitimate performer. Uh, first solo record in 1970. I think now he has almost 50 full length albums okay, available. Okay, okay. So it's kind of yeah, impressive. Uh, that's what I wanted to ask. Is so if you know the the band that made him famous was suddenly uh, you know Banda Non Garada after 1970, and he had to reinvent himself. This film, The Man Who Stole the Sun, came out in 1979. Mm -hmm. So I assume that in that period, he just kind of blew up on his own, in his own right, sort of? Well, he was performing in stadiums, um, and he was also starring in films, the for the Tigers films being his yeah, first film appearances. But he also starred in films throughout the 70s. So he was a known actor. His career is even more interesting after The Man Who Stole the Sun, which we Takashi should... Takashi Miike? Yeah. Um, what? He was in two Seijun Suzuki films. Uh, he was in Tsukamoto's um, Hiroku the Goblin. Uh, hang, so on, many, hang on, hang on, hang on. So many interesting uh, films. First question, what what Takashi Miike is he in? Happiness of the Katakuris. Oh my gosh, really? I loved that when I was a kid. Yep. I still love it. I used to watch it all the time. It's aged very well. And by the way, the uh, Yuya Uchida the musician who signed the Tigers to a major label. He also went on to uh, form the Flower Traveling Band. Oh, I was going to say, I know this name. Why? He also became an actor. He was in uh, Mike's Izo. And uh, um, he was yeah. also in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It's, it's crazy how many super <laughs> famous Japanese musicians are in really important cult films. Mm -hmm. Like, I yeah. mean, again, Sakamoto, a Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Sure. He's fucking amazing in it. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it's really it's really helpful to have kind of 
a knowledge of both the history of music and uh, film in Japan because there's so many parallels between them. Yeah, and I feel like one of the best scenes or one of the best directions that the man who stole the sun goes into is there's this radio dj who the main character calls into zero zero and she i know we brought up obayashi earlier she also i think a lot of you will recognize her because she's the lead in house or Houseu. oh yeah 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 and anyway he, he calls her up and is basically farming because he doesn't know what to fucking do with this power that he's got. Like, well, what should I do? I have a bomb. Uh, what, what do I do? And she kind of asks everybody, you know, asks the crowd, you know, pull the audience. And one of the answers that comes back is the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Keith Richards has been banned from Japan because apparently the guy likes cocaine, cocaine all, all the drugs, heroin. really. They it, say they grass, say dope and dope film, is what yeah. they say. Yeah. Well, which, and in 1979, they were not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> the, the man loved his dope, uh, and and so for this reason, they weren't allowed to play in Japan. But you know, if you guys is that true? Yeah, true story. That is as true as how they tell you to build a bomb in the movie. <laughs> Put it in your own oven. Just cook it up. <laughs> but uh, I mean, what a wild direction for it to go in, where. They have to bring the Rolling Stones to the country, but but he becomes sort of like this populist hero. Yes. Like I am holding the government to ransom, and I don't think we said, but he makes one real fully leaded bomb, and then he makes a fake bomb that looks identical that has a trace of radiation in it, so they know that he's not fucking around. And he basically says, you know, give me bunta or or give me death. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just so crazy that like he doesn't have his own demands, but wants to consult with the the people on the radio about what they want. Yeah, he becomes a counterculture hero, uh, representing the youth. Even though he tries to kill a bunch of kids. And, and again, that's why he, this is such a complex character. Really tough to define, but um, kind of just to get things in order. So he, the science teacher, stole plutonium, successfully makes a bomb celebrates by dancing to a bob marley song yes. right? fantastic scene oh and you know what we didn't even talk about the opening 25 minutes of the film oh, which is yeah. how he first meets boon oh yeah and this like hostage situation which is, which this is, like, standoff with this like wrenching. japanese nationalist guy who's in his old fucking army i don't army. think he's a nationalist either no i don't think so either he's okay he's a japanese army guy he's wearing his army uniform and he's demanding a you know audience with the emperor because he wants his son back right he's not over the death of his son he probably blames the emperor. We don't really know, but For he wants sure. to talk to the emperor. It clearly, yeah. <laughs> but he has issues. a machine gun and, and some grenades. grenades. Yeah, and he <laughs> takes the school bus hostage, which has the science teacher, his classroom, the cop that comes on the scene to, you know, cool everything down is Bunta Shigawara. Yeah, so right off the bat, this is the opening sequence. You're you're dealing with three generations of people. You have this, um, you know, the wartime era. Grandpa. And, and the hijacker. And then um, the father figure would be Bunta, the, the policeman and, he and really the authority. And really has a lot of daddy energy mm -hmm. in this movie. <laughs> and, then, and, then, um, and then Kenji, the science teacher, even though he's in his like early 30s, he's representing youth in this For case. Sure. The grandfather doesn't make it out of this. That generation is wiped out no, they're, early they're on. The but he's they're also done. such a likable character. Yeah, but you know, you don't really get a say in the future when you're that old. You're toast. You're you're out the fucking door. Yeah. And <laughs> and Bunta, you know, 
fucking daddy king kind of douchebag that he is, uh, when he's walking back to the bus with the with the science teacher, and they're having this little conversation, and, and Bunta asks him, he says, uh, so what do you teach? And he responds, science. And, he's, and then Bunta's like, oh, really? Fat lot of good that's doing you here now, isn't it? <laughs> you know, basically to say, like, I'm going to get us out of this, and you, the youth, studying your science, you're not going to do shit to get us out of this. Right. And look He's not wrong. How, but, but he is but, wrong. But he, the yes. movie goes on to show you that he is wrong. There's a, there's a great shot when that scene wraps up and everybody jumps in the ambulance with the now, you know, shot up grandfather character uh and the, and the ambulance pulls away it's just uh julie staring as it goes by and you're like what is he thinking right now is he about to match wit is he has he decided to match wits with this generation with yeah. this cop and i that's what i've always leaned towards yeah i i was expecting throughout the movie for there to be a uh an inverse of that scene later which there sort of is when they have their their showdown in the end but i was expecting and oh my god the end. It, it's a different film <laughs> yeah it's oh my gosh it there's at the this, like fake Rolling Stones concert it's an amazing movie it's it's one that <laughs> l- like you said um you came across it because you were looking for movies that were hard to find mm-hmm. and yeah this is a movie that I would say is pretty darn hard to find and anyone listening who hasn't seen the movie I rarely do this uh and honestly it's pretty annoying when I do but if you want to watch this movie hit me up no. <laughs> yeah, we we shouldn't say what happens at the end because it's the sort of thing that you need to see. I mean, and and also like even to comprehend. But this is one that like we could, li- but we could we could say everything that happens in this movie, and then when you watch it, you're just like, that's not what I expected at all, you know? Because it's just it has this this crazy tone and energy that is just so hard to pin down that it's it's it's, it's also crazy because I feel like. If you don't go into it really registering how long it is, there are moments where it feels like, okay, the movie's over now, and then something will happen, and Kenji just is like, he's like the cat who came back. He just like keeps keeps on chugging along, and you're like, where can this possibly go next? <laughs> Yeah, the film, um, as you said earlier, it has this kind of whimsical pacing, um, but then towards the end, it kind of... Uh, there's this, this this very relaxing music as things are gearing up and then music stops and it's like nonstop car noises, car chase and car explosions. And then it ends with a giant fight, which would be out of a Yakuza film. Uh, it's, it's so over the top. It's also yeah. longer than that famously long and they, they live, live fight <laughs> scene. And- I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. Like, if you took a shot for every time Bunta is shot, you it's would amazing. be dead. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I, I love that in in all these kinds of movies, like Yakuza movies and even the fucking triad movies in Hong Kong. The way that characters get shot, it's like when you take a shot of liquor. They just make a face, they wince a little bit, and then they keep on fucking especially, going. Especially if they're mad or if they have something to defend. Yeah. In this case, Bunta has both of those motivations. Yeah. Uh, Mike's Dead or Alive came to mind when I was rewatching it. Oh just my god! The finale yes. where yeah. they just keep taking abuse from each other, <laughs> but keep getting back up. Bunta gives a performance like that. At it the starts end. to feel and of course, and they have the exact wow. Now they mention that they have the same ending too. <laughs> it starts to feel <laughs> actually they do. <laughs> I, I didn't think of that. Yeah, 
it, it's, but it, their fight starts to feel weirdly kind of sexual okay. or something. So the theatrical poster, which I have hanging in my living room, wow. is is a um, a shirtless Bunta laying on the ground looking at the camera with Kenji draped with an open white shirt draped over him. Without a doubt, uh, homoerotic okay. overtones. Uh, so I definitely <laughs> picked that up, but I thought that maybe it was just me reading too much into it because... Bunta, so I feel like there's this very specific quality, this like hyper-masculine quality that certain Japanese actors have, like Sonny Chiba, and like there's no real American translation where a lot of them start off as models and like they're not bodybuilders. Honestly, I think the closest American translation is someone like Kurt Russell, who in... The end of Big Trouble in Little China, he has like shit all over his face. He's like willing to Be do ridiculous. the action hero thing, but also not not take it so seriously while also taking it seriously. I've always thought of Bronson as our Yakuza actor of the 70s. Yeah, but, th- but there's also this very like, because they're in stories that present like tensions and rivalries with other men who want their approval... It sometimes feels homoerotic. Sure, I think I think you're right to question it though, because I think it's more presented as a father son relationship in the film and a younger generation going up against. Yeah, an older he wants one. his approval. Yeah, and if you just saw that poster, you'd be like, oh, I, I, I should expect this in the film, and it's by no means at the surface. Um, you know, you kind of strain to even see it under the surface. Uh, but again, I'm, I'm always looking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think that theme. It's like the. Uh, I don't know if it's Freudian or Oedipal in some way where it's uh, the notion that in order to come into your own, you have to kill your father. It's not literal, but in, <laughs> in these movies, it is like he's taking this idea and he like in the youth killer, especially, but also the man who stole the son, the idea of uh, killing your father in order to be your own man. And the crazy thing. So, Youth Killer also has a plot that's very difficult to sum up, but basically this frustrated young man, his parents seem to be really chill and are trying to support him and help him like go against Japanese tradition. Like they basically tell him, you don't have to follow in our footsteps and you shouldn't, we will give you the money to open this totally different business And then when we retire, we'll help you with your business. But he's just like angry and disgruntled, kills his father. And this is in the first 20 minutes of the movie. So no spoilers. And but then there's all this weird shit with his mother. And a lot of the art theater guild directors have these weird incest plots like well, Imamura, vengeance is mine this definitely sort well, of looks ahead to usually after you kill your father that's when you move on to the real uh prize which is you know but i marrying feel like your mother but i feel like the crazy thing about a lot of japanese movies is other than the proxy fathers that you see in man who stole the sun and all the yakuza movies you don't see real f- biological fathers in these movies very often so the fact that Youth Killer shows him literally killing his father. Yeah, it's it's so weird to see these like concepts that usually aren't literal taken literally. And I think that's why the satire in The Man Who Stole the Sun is so hard to pin down. Because usually when you think of satire, it's when you say something straight-faced 
but is meant to be not taken that way. You know, like that's kind of what satire is. You're like, you know, I'm doing this. Uh, I don't know how to fucking say it. I don't yeah, know. I see what you're saying. But like you're saying something and you're not supposed to take it literally. It's what's underneath it. It's it's showing you the ridiculousness in it. But I feel like these movies, they are satirical, but you have to take them literally. You have to take them at their word. It's it's so strange. Keep in mind that uh, Youth Killer is based on a book, which was a retelling of something that happened in real life. Uh, Whoa. True story. Which, which uh, is a lot of the the art house theater guild movies that I was thinking of, like in the realm of the senses, true story. similar vibes, true story. Vengeance is mine. Lady true in the story. dunes. Woman in the is dunes. Is that a true story? <laughs> <laughs> One can only hope. <laughs> the, the, the fact that it's a real life event kind of um, allows you to read into the counterculture of the time and the tensions of the time and be like, well, why did this happen? What does it represent when it becomes a film? You know, it is, a, it is a strange film because, again, you're following despicable people as your leads. The only good guy in the film gets killed off in the first 20 minutes. The father, you know, struggled to um, maintain his family. He used to sell popsicles on the beach, and now he has a, um, get, or not a, like a, uh, a tire a, shop, a, a truck, truck tire yeah. repair shop. Yeah, classic. Um, turns out his wife, who works there with him, is not happy with this life. She doesn't want to do this for the rest of her life. So in a way, she's gleeful when he's murdered oh yeah that whole scene that the scene is insane Uh, for the violence but even more so for the dialogue and the interesting thing is that the murder itself happens in an instant where the father um basically comments on the the protagonist's uh girlfriend that that the, the, the film centers around this guy and his girlfriend who the parents don't like and they grew up close to each other and they say she's not trustworthy and it turns out she's maybe not necessarily trustworthy. And um, in, in a somewhat disturbing um, story that the father tells to the son, it ends up with the son stabbing him. But you see it, you don't, I think you don't fully understand what happens till later when you see the full flashback play out. Mm-hmm. So the first time around you see it, it's just like, wait, there's blood everywhere. What the hell is going on? That's great. The flashback towards the oh end my of the gosh. film showing the scene. It's, it's amazing. It's fantastic. Yeah. In a way you're like, oh, that's why he killed him. And in a way you understand, which is well, <laughs> which I is think, somewhat disturbing. Yes. And they do a lot of disturbing things. So if you haven't seen any of the art theater guild films, a lot of them have explicit sex. And they often have scenes of rape or sexual violence. And Youth Killer definitely has those. Like all of the sex scenes or almost all of the sex scenes. Do not begin consensually. No. And then you hear the story about how she was raped as a child. And it's sort of in a very gross way, but a way that has a certain logic to it, like ties it all together. And it's just by the end, you're like, I need to take a shower. Yeah, And it's wild how that movie... Very different from the man who stole the son, but also in a lot of ways, like kind of contextualized it. And it it almost made it. I mean, like, that's why I am less frustrated with not knowing the lead character's reasoning in The Man Who Stole the Son. Or in Youth Killer. Or in Youth Killer, because when you're a kid, you don't fucking know. You know, you just. Sometimes when you're an adult, you don't know either. (laughs) Yes, but you're much better (laughs) at pretending that you do. I I think it's easier to understand in Youth Killer where. When you're young and you hear something that just completely changes your mentality and you just want to strike out and destroy it oh, and yeah. destroy everything. And that's what the film's about. Um, whether 
this knowledge that you learned is true or not. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. The possibility that it could be true. Just they, this character is just done with life. Everything can go away. Yeah, it almost seems like a, you know, there's so many crime movies where somebody tries to commit suicide by cop, where like they commit a crime knowing they'll be killed. And mm-hmm. it seems like that's what he wants and he just can't make it happen. <laughs> yeah, he actually like verbalizes it at one point. Yeah. He says something to the extent of what does it matter about me? The world keeps turning. <laughs> and he, he has he's, you know, he's well off. Uh, he's doing fine in life, but because of this knowledge that he learns, he wants to destroy everything around him, and he does. In a very different way than uh, Kenji in yeah. The Man Who Stole the Sun. Yeah, but like, but it's crazy how, like, in the way that they do it in The Man Who Stole the Sun, obviously it's much more violent. I mean, you're going to destroy, wipe mm-hmm. out the entire city of Tokyo, like, you know. In a way, the characters are similar. Kenji's just a more mature version of this character yeah. from yeah, Youth and a Killer. More, a more humorous, whimsical version. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I think it's like that humorous and whimsical tone that just completely downplays and kind of makes you forget the actual connotations of what he is doing you know and it's easy to not like think of it like that and you're thinking of it in this like hey the Beatles are coming to Tokyo you know (laughs) it's just it's so weird it's full of pop culture too yeah Um, you know Kenji when he's first making his his first atomic bomb he's singing the theme song to Astro Boy um, yeah, you know, he takes a break and he's watching Ultraman Leo yes. on the we TV. Lo- we love to see that. Um, yeah, you know, like it, it, it's rooted in Japan, modern Japan of that year, which I love seeing. I love, I love seeing uh, movie theater marquees. You know, did you catch it's, this? It's oh, Superman great. is showing there. Paused it in that yeah, scene. There oh, were, I love that. There are great billboard ads and like poster ads everywhere. It, it also, I think, I really have started to develop a love for those like late seventies, early eighties movies, because you can see, especially ones like the two that we're talking about today. I feel like you can see how they grew out of those biker gang movies of the late sixties and early seventies. And they have like some similar tropes, but they're so different tonally and Mm -hmm. Japan just looks different, even though it's yeah. less than 10 years later in some cases. Sure. Okay, so let me <laughs> ask you, this This might be, this is the sort of question where if I was asked this and wasn't prepared, I would lose my mind. So if you don't have an answer, it's fine. But if somebody really likes these, you know, 60s and 70s movies and they want to get more into Japanese music, do you have any suggestions of where to start or personal favorites? I mean, it, it depends on, on what they're into. The There's a lot of great group sounds compilations out there. Um, ones that were made in the past 15 years that are available in the States. Um, the three biggest group sounds bands were Spiders, Tempters, and uh, Tigers. For 70s progressive or kind of psychedelic rock, you have Flower Traveling Band. Their album Satori it's is considered so one of the great psychedelic albums. Um, I saw them live twice, which is very lucky. Taj Mahal Travelers, Blues Creation, and of course, Le Rallies de Nude. I think it's Light in the Attic just started putting out their, um, or at least distributing their albums. Um, notorious band that I could talk about forever. They intentionally never recorded. They never went into a studio. That's how we should do the fucking podcast. Uh, That's well, how yeah. we should do it. Just like on a street corner or on one of those trucks. You truck, had to be there. On one yeah. of those trucks with the <laughs> megaphones just yeah. driving around uh, the city. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, amazing band. Um, bass player went on to hijack an airplane and crash it in North Korea. Hell yeah, Lead singer retired into the mountains, went into seclusion. Um, again, they never recorded. They uh, only exist in uh, live bootlegs, which are now being released on vinyl in the States, which is an amazing thing. It really is. The We didn't really talk about it much in this episode, but it's definitely something I will bring up in the future because it's something I'm working on right now that I can't really announce yet, but there's such a wild connection between Japanese filmmakers and actors and musicians with the radical left. And even like people like Koji Wakamatsu making hardcore films who were like, okay, I'm going to go to Palestine and learn how to fire off an AK 47. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> they were learning more than firing AK 47s over there. They were making fucking bombs and I shit. And... Not atomic bombs though. No. Wakamatsu was another art theater guild guy, right? Yep. Was that ecstasy of angels? Was that him? That was his, one of his first ones. A wild time. Why do we have this knowledge? It's crazy. <laughs> Where does it get us? And now anyone listening's got it too. Now you're infected with you it. It's this. like the ring, you know. You got to tell someone else in order to fucking, you know. <laughs> this year, I lost my two um, major film mentors. They both passed away this year, and since then, I have constantly questioned why I know all of this and where it is getting me in life. And I think I started watching mindless modern horror films as, as a way, way to of cope. Yeah, as a way <laughs> as a way of just being like all right let's stop taking this stuff so seriously let's just watch these <laughs> stupid movies um yeah did you guys see smile yet you're going to die you're going to die you're going to die. oh my gosh no. save it save no, it we, listen we were, we're gonna do a to, yes listeners we were supposed to go with eric and his <laughs> wife but a cold was an obstacle yeah, to me yeah. sitting through all of Smile. Hey, you dodged a fucking smile and bullet. Wait, you guys liked it, didn't you? Or did you, have you seen it? In a way, we like them all. <laughs> all right, in, in all right. A, in we another way, they are complete waste of time. <laughs> um, you know, I watch them and I forget them. I don't, I don't remember them the next morning. But that's it's, what they're good for. Yeah. I feel the same way. I, I maybe one day will come around to new horror. Once I stop taking things so seriously, but that's how I am with new action movies. Mm. I just want to like see things explode and then forget about it. I mean, all I really watch aside from nonsense like that are Hong Kong films. And right now they are more yeah. accessible than they've ever been. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's a golden it's age we're living in right now. It's, it's absolutely so nice. Amazing. I mean, I've been watching this like fuzzy bootleg, no subtitle shit for so long. And to see them in HD, it's with subtitles that you can actually read that yeah. aren't fuzzed out. <laughs> I mean, or, in, or that don't disappear below the frame sometimes. In uh, in high school, I was paying video store prices. I paid ninety dollars for the VHS of Bride with White Hair, you know, because it was like priced for video stores to buy and rent I out. I bet that Ronnie, and, you um, didn't see a single dollar of that. 90. <laughs> that Whatever, he got his Freddy vs. Jason money. And the stores had those those nice clamshell Tai Seng releases, and you know that's how I saw Chinese Ghost Story and all that. And now that we get to see these in HD with really nice subtitles, it's an amazing amazing time to live in. <laughs> This is why you have all that knowledge. I guess. I really just enjoy them, you know? Like, I, I you know, I, that's where I want to be. I want to be in late 80s, early 90s Hong Kong. I mean, you, <laughs> you're not alone. Yeah. I, I asked Carly the other night, my wife, I said, uh, do you want to go take a trip to Hong Kong? And she said, all I know about it is the crime. Because that's all, that's, <laughs> that's all she sees. Well, she could have just visited our fucking neighborhood. <laughs> 
Um, are there any events coming up at the uh, Philomoca that you want to highlight? Anything uh, that we can't miss? or Yeah, anything you want to shout out? Oh, December is always kind of relaxing. We have the annual Exhumed Films Christmas party with a surprise 35mm film. Uh, towards the end of the month, I'm doing the great Dial Code Santa Claus, which I'm sure you so guys fun. have seen. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of the great Christmas films. We're showing that with Agfa's 70-minute um, Christmas that I'm excited mix. about. That'll be fun. Um, the Found Footage Festival's coming in October. I've got a lot of private holiday parties. Um, Wait, in October? I'm sorry, in December. It all blends together. Yeah. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like not, not much to plug. Philomoca.org if you're curious of what we do. Um, yeah, come visit us. Yeah, it's it's yeah. awesome. I I got a oh yeah my psychotronic screening is coming up i think i think the 19th is it going to be christmas related i think you should tell him your idea okay this is what i'm i'm thinking about doing i'm gonna pick two movies one's gonna be naughty and one's gonna be nice and i'm gonna get up on stage and do a little bit and basically like you know, be a mixture of uh, Santa Claus and Anton Chigurh <laughs> and flip a coin, you know, and, and see if, you know, the audience Which is lucky or, or naughty or I'll poll and, you know. I love it. Nobody's ever done a poll before. Yeah, so I want to do I want to do a poll. That would be, be fun. really fun. Although I know what will be in store for them. Well, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it lands on heads. We'll see. Are they crowd pleasers? Yeah, well... Yes, yes. Mm. One of them is, of the ideas that I know, all of them are will be wild crowd pleasers, except one will drive people from <laughs> Philomoka. And it's the one that I want to play so <laughs> fucking bad. Because I love walking out of screenings, man. I do. I, I really do. But don't forget, my uh, my I had the pick last December, and it was a karate Christmas miracle. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and you know, mm-hmm. that, that's as insufferable as a film gets. But Yeah. Uh, it's, no, which, it's no Christmas Ninja, I guess. Which we still need to watch. <laughs> it is uh, one of those films where it is... It is unwatchable and then you get 90 minutes in and you stand up and cheer <laughs> and it's like I, I love I love a film like that where it's you're just wasting your life away and then suddenly it all becomes worth it that's the best kind of film <laughs> and I, that people stood up and cheered at the end of that it was it was so it's just a it was like a holiday thing. miracle it's, it was fantastic it's definitely like a very specific type of I don't want to say gaslighting, but it's it's just <laughs> but it's like you're miserable and bored the whole time and you're like, should I leave? Why am I here? But then because something so great or so memorable happens at the end, it sort of like tricks you into thinking that you liked the movie or tricks you into recommending it. Sure. Patience should uh, pay off like that. Oh yeah. It should. Yeah. You got any plugs, Sam? Honestly, just that I love Bunta. Yeah, Bunta. Fucking Punta, what a king! What an absolute king! He doesn't quite have the same, you know, cheeks that you want to bite like Joe Shishido, but, <laughs> but he's close. Yeah, yeah. We didn't talk about his films, um, you know. We didn't. I feel like we'll have to do an actual yeah. proper. Oh my gosh! Episode. There's going to be a day when we're going to cover the fucking. We should. Jackets. We should watch all ten Truck Rascals and then we'll go through them all. Oh, his trucker movies. I, was, yeah. I would love that. <laughs> yeah, instead of doing, uh, you know, the Battles Without Honor series, yeah. or fucking <laughs> Truck Rascals. Do the comedy truck films. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hell yeah. See you later, everybody. Thank right, you, Eric. Oh, oh yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thanks yeah. for having me.